I would like to also take an opportunity to take this opportunity to thank Brother Glenn Short, our deacon of finance, our deacon of facilities, for organizing a very productive work day. I know you had had help in doing that, and uh, it was a very very beautiful sight to see so many of church family rolling up our sleeves and working hard, and the place looks so much nicer. Thank thank everybody for coming in and being a part of that. And then also as pastor, I would like to say to the church family a, a heartfelt thank you. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, you were given the opportunity to participate in a love offering for one of our church family. And, um, and I received a very beautiful, uh, sweet card from the family thanking us as a church family for your generosity and for your love and for your prayers. And, uh, and certainly the love gift uh, certainly will help uh, through a very difficult situation. So thank you on behalf of, of, of that family. This morning I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts as the Gospel writer Luke so accurately, meticulously records for us the history of that early church as we've moved out from Pentecost back in chapter 2 and, and we've seen how God has been working mightily in the life of the church. I think it's so interesting as we look uh, every other Sunday, we're in the book of Exodus, and we see God forging, developing a people for himself through the covenant of the law. And, uh, and yet in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, we see God doing likewise, forging, developing, cultivating a people for himself under a new covenant, a covenant of grace. And so it's just interesting, you know, we get those two perspectives and can gain appreciation for the activity of God. I think about Dr. Henry Blackaby wrote a, a Bible study, and a number of you went through it, entitled Experiencing God. This has been, oh, maybe 10, 15 years ago, and it was a wonderful study. And in that, he had seven realities that he, he gave for us to consider as we looked at God and, and how he works. And, and the first reality was that God is always at work around us. God is always at work around us. And then the second reality in that is that God invites us to join him in what he's doing. And, and you'll see how that plays out as we move into the book of Acts and go further as you see the, the early church beginning to take shape and form. And, and then the the third reality, and there were seven, but the third reality that Dr. Blackaby identified in the study was that God pursues a continuing love relationship with, with you and me that is both real and personal. So from that, you gather that we don't serve a, a distant, detached deity, but we serve a very personal God, a God who is very much imminent, a God who is very present, a God who engages His people. And He works around His people. He works through His people. He accomplishes His, His will through the people that He calls to be His own. You and me. The church. And we see this playing out in the book of Acts as Luke records these events. And back in chapter 9, you may recall earlier on how the Apostle Paul experienced, uh, or uh, Saul of Tarsus at that time, experienced a, a, a phenomenal, wondrous, divine conversion experience. One of the most dramatic uh, conversion experiences I think you'll find in the Holy Scriptures. 
And so as we continue to watch and see the impact that that has upon the church, I think it's interesting if you'll focus your attention with me in chapter 9 of Acts and look at verse 31, I think there's an interesting uh, interlude there that, that, that Luke gives us because we see that, that Saul of Tarsus is now a Christian. And this has an impact upon the church at that time. Look with me in verse 31. It says, Then the churches, plural, and, and, and that means that all the, the manifestations of the church, all the congregations from Jerusalem uh, up through Judea into Galilee, uh, Samaria now, all the churches, but he's speaking collectively as the church. From this point on in the book of Acts, when Luke talks about churches, he'll be talking about individual local congregations. But here, you, you, you're seeing him describe the, the universal church. In other words, all the churches per se, in general. Throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, had peace and, and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplied. So what you see described here is the, the church, the Lord is cultivating growth in his church. He's using this particular time period following Saul's conversion to do something in the church. And don't forget, Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 has given very clear marching orders to his disciples, to the body of Christ. And I might add to 21st century Christians today, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, these marching orders still apply to you and me. And in that he says, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will receive power. And you will be my witnesses. If you're one of mine, you will be my witness. And as a witness of mine, he says, you will, you will spread the gospel. You will be witnesses of mine both in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Jesus is basically saying as the body of Christ, as individual local congregations, as individual Christians, we have a responsibility to move forward and to make disciples. That is our ultimate purpose on this earth during our time to bring glory to God by being a witness for Him and making disciples. Now, in retrospect, as we look back at that early church, we saw that a storm of persecution actually facilitated the church's expansion. You may recall that the church started in Jerusalem there. Everybody was congregated in Jerusalem. They were having a good time, sitting under the apostles, teaching, sharing everything, having food together, fellowship together. And it was almost like a, a, a religious commune there in Jerusalem. And, and somehow had forgotten that they had marching orders that involved moving out beyond the city to the limits of Jerusalem. So what does God do? He uses Saul's murderous commission to give rise to persecution, which would in turn disperse the church. And this is how the Christians moved out from Jerusalem, is that they were being persecuted there. Saul became a leading figure there, breathing threats towards the church, as we see at the beginning of chapter 9. And because of the persecution that the church was under, Christians began to leave Jerusalem. They were dispersed, as we saw in the life of Philip, out beyond Jerusalem. And so you see that Jesus' great commission, Matthew chapter 8, 29, where Jesus, or Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, where Jesus said to his disciples, Go therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, 
Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was the fires of persecution that moved them out from Jerusalem to begin to spread the church. But then we saw Saul's wondrous conversion and how it brought that persecution to a close. So, so God started the fire, which was persecution with Saul, and Saul breathing threats and the church is being spread. But then God extinguishes the fire temporarily by encountering Saul on the road to Damascus. And Saul encountered that, uh, the, the res- resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And there, the very one who was the persecutor of the church, the very one who was committed to arresting God's people, now found himself under spiritual arrest by the, by the Savior. If, if you could think of Paul being arrested by Jesus because Jesus secured Saul to himself and made him one of his followers. And so when the primary persecutor himself is off the scene, guess what? So does persecution begin to diminish. I thought it was interesting and somewhat ironic that the very one who embodied persecuting the church, the persecutor of the church, now became the persecuted. Because now he's the target. Saul becomes the target because the Jews are now after him. And so Saul, as we saw in the closing of the last message that ended there in chapter 9, verse 30, Saul is, is now going back to Tarsus to take some of the heat off of himself. But this is all providential. God is at work. Like Dr. Blackaby said, God is always at work. He's up to something continuously. And it's for the church to see where he's at, at, active and to get involved. Now, persecution begins to diminish for the church at that time because the primary persecutor himself is now a Christian. He, Saul's not a threat to the church anymore. And, but also, historians tell us that there were some, some political changes going on that would have affected persecution. Because now Pontius Pilate has been taken off of, the, off of his throne as the, as the governor of the region. And Herod Agrippa is coming on the scene. And during this time of transition, several years... The Jewish authorities don't have the power to persecute the church that they once had. So Saul's off the scene, political changes. God gives the church a reprieve during this time. And, and the purpose of giving the church a reprieve from persecution is so that the church would have stability and the church would grow. And so in this season of peace, we find that it enhances the church's development. The body of Christ is strengthened. It's very reminiscent of what we saw in chapter 4. Hold your place in chapter 9. Just want to refresh your memory because there was a time, even after Peter and John had been arrested, you may recall, by the Jewish authorities, and and they were released, and the people prayed for them, and the the house was shaken in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, by the Spirit of God that shook that prayer meeting, and, and, and there was a powerful presence of the Spirit of God. Look at verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they, all, they had all things in common. And with great power the, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So back then in chapter 4, we saw how God was, even in the midst of the persecution, God was giving the church an opportunity to be strengthened and to grow. But we also see that the church 
going back to chapter 9, it says that the church was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they multiplied. During this time when persecution is not as rampant and evident, the church is beginning to stabilize, the church is beginning to to grow as it's multiplying its members. So this is a time of, of that God is cultivating growth in the church. But then I think it's interesting. The focus has been, up to this point, on Saul of Tarsus. Chapter 8, chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus. And in the meantime, the apostles in, in Jerusalem are kind of off to the side. Except when Peter and John came up to Samaria to inspect the great revival and spiritual awakening that was breaking out at Philip's preaching. That was about the last time we saw the Apostle Peter. Now enter the Apostle Peter as God reactivates his Apostle, the Apostle Peter. And so I, I, I want us to pick up here in verse 32. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all the parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. Now let me just stop there for a second because I want you to understand something. Peter, the, Simon Peter, one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus Christ, spent three intense years walking with the Son of God. Listening to, being taught by, being discipled by the Son of God. I believe that you see in Peter, what we're seeing in these next verses, I believe you're going to see evidence of the fact that Peter was exercising the principle of abiding in Christ. Where do we find that? We find it in John's Gospel in chapter 15, verse 5, where Jesus is teaching Peter and he's teaching the other disciples. He says about himself, the Lord Jesus said about himself, I am the vine. Get that picture, fellas. And in an agricultural community, that wouldn't be too hard to imagine. Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same shall bring forth much fruit. Now you may say, well, that sounds good for Peter and John and James and all those original disciples, but I'm a 21st century disciple. Does that apply to me? You better believe it does. Dear brother and sister, let me tell you something. You and I can do nothing we can do nothing of eternal significance in our own strength, in our own abilities, without Christ. And it's very important that we make a determination as contemporary disciples and followers of Christ every day to abide in Christ by faith. Because when you chose to make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of your life, and that you receive the gift of salvation, let me tell you something, His Holy Spirit came to abide in you. And He is in you, He is in me, and we by faith abide in Him. He is the vine. We are merely the branches. If anything is to be done in our life of eternal significance, it's going to come through our daily dependence upon the Lord. And you'll see this happening in Peter. He remembered that. He remembered that lesson. He committed to apply that to his life. Now some pretty wonderful things are going to happen through the Apostle Peter, but I'm going to tell you right now, Simon, Barjona, Peter, the former fisherman, couldn't have done not one of these on his own. So now he's making a, like an itinerant preacher. Persecution is down. He's got the freedom to move about. The, the region where and visit the churches where churches have been planted 
where the community of faith is growing. He's going, he's preaching, he's exhorting, he's encouraging believers. But he's also doing all of this in the power and the strength of Christ in him. So he comes now down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. And there he found a certain man, Aeneas, named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. I want you to see in these few verses right here that God's power is being demonstrated through God's servant. Peter is practicing the principle of abiding in Christ and what you see happening here is Jesus working a miracle through Peter. You know, it's interesting if you hold your place there and you go back to the Gospel of Matthew. You may recall when I preached through the Gospel of Matthew, that's been years ago it seems now. But in chapter 9 of... Look at the parallel. Look at the similarity of what Peter does and remember what Christ did during his earthly ministry and recall the fact that Peter saw everything Jesus did. He watched intently because Christ was modeling for him and the other disciples just how you live the, the righteous life, the Christian life. You may recall back in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 9, Jesus, we're told there, as he came into his own city, verse 2, and behold, they brought to him a, a paralytic lying on a bed, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, well, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? Of course, they knew it would be easier to say, oh, your sins are forgiven because you don't require any tangible evidence or proof. It would be harder if you say to a lame man, a man that's been paralyzed all his life, say, get up, take your mat, your mat and walk out of here. But that's exactly what Jesus said. And so we're, we see there that Jesus told the man, the paralytic in verse 6, arise, take your bed and go to your house. And, the, and he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Now, not only was the multitude watching that day, ladies and gentlemen, I promise you, this former fisherman named Simon was glued on what the Savior was doing. And that never left his mind. And here he is in a city, and he encounters a man who's been paralyzed, and he's been carrying around on a mat for, for eight years. Eight years is a long time. And I realize that we have individuals in this congregation right now who have been suffering chronic illnesses, not for days, not for weeks, not for months, but for years. If there's anybody in this church that can identify with this man's plight, it would be those who are suffering from chronic illnesses that you have experienced pain and disability for years. And so as we come back to chapter 9, I want you to understand, this is not Peter speaking. This is not Simon doing. This is Jesus. The Spirit of God sees this lame man. The Spirit of God empowers Peter to say to him, to, to Aeneas, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And this man, we're told, 
arose. He didn't gradually roll around. He didn't try to get up and fall. He didn't have somebody help him. Immediately, he got up, took his mat, folded it up. I won't need this anymore. Hallelujah. I'm a, I'm a new person. God is demonstrating His power through Peter over sickness. And this is exactly what Jesus did. Peter is simply imitating. This is what it means to live the abiding in Christ principle. But we go on. It gets even better. In verse 36, at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is the aromatic version of her name, which is translated Dorcas, which is the Greek translation and probably the most popular. She was probably known by Dorcas, but in the Aramaic, Tabitha. This woman was, was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. And I want to just stop there a second because if you're not careful, you can miss a very important point. She's described as a believer. You're talking about a fellow disciple. This is a church member. The man that Peter just healed was just a certain man. He was, he was probably not saved. I dare say he became a Christian after that, but, but the fact is, that man was just described as a certain man. Here we find a woman who is described as a certain disciple. She is a believer. She is a professed follower of Jesus Christ who is prone to doing good works and charitable deeds, and we'll see that. In verse 37, but it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When, when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Not customarily, because the Jews are known for burying the dead pretty quickly. But these fellow Christians, church members, so distraught by her death, and, and, and prompted to do something unusual, take her body up to an upper room, wash it and prepare it, and leave it laying in state. Don't rush to the cemetery. God may be up to something. You see, they had heard that just over the hillside in the nearby town of Lydda, there was this apostle, a follower of Christ, Simon Peter. And he just healed a paralytic. The power of Christ was in this man. So we see that they, verse 37, and since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Now they didn't tell him what to do. They just said, listen, one of our prominent ladies, one of the most godly, most humble, most faithful serving persons in our church, she, she's a dear member. We, we can't stand the thought of losing her. They didn't say, look, come and raise her from the dead. They just said, just come be with us, Peter. Why? Why? I'll tell you why. Because they knew that indwelling Peter was the Spirit of Christ. If they could just have him with them, they would, it would be as if they had Christ with them. That's how powerful the presence of the Spirit of God was on Simon Peter. So, we're told that Peter, in verse 39, arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him, Weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. This is her ministry. By the way, it's a New Testament ministry. Paul gives orders to the church, commands to the early churches, listen, you take care of those who need help in your church. You take care of two classes of people in your church. You take care of the widows who don't have family to take care of them, to look after them. You take care of the widows. 
and you take care of the orphans. You make sure, as a body of Christ, that you invest yourself in looking after these two groups of people. And here was Dorcas, who was a given person. She was gifted in sewing, and she made beautiful tunics. And, and all these widows were there in that upper room with her lifeless body. And, and the first thing they wanted Peter to see is, look, look what an impact. She made clothes for us. She, she sewed into the midnight hour. She was always so generous and careful, caring. And oh, we can't imagine life without her. What a godly example of Christian servanthood embodied in this woman named Dorcas. And I'm sure those weeping and wailing because they were all distraught at her death. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. Unlike the charlatans that are out there bandstanding so-called faith healing, milking money out of people left and right, claiming such great powers for themselves, you'll notice a big contrast. They're out there under the spotlight. They want their names advertised. They want all the attention and credit given to themselves. It's all a scam. Peter doesn't. He doesn't say, well, let's set up a stage here. Give me some stage hands and let's put this body high up on a, on a, a, a scaffold so everybody can see it. And let's wait and get everybody, get as many people. Let's charge them a, a, a couple of uh, shekels each to get in here. Let's, let's bandstand this thing. No, Peter remembered something. He remembered back in Mark's Gospel in chapter 5 when Jairus, the, temp, the, 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 the ruler of the synagogue, had a precious daughter that was very sick and died. And you remember when Jesus went with Jairus to the house where his daughter lay there lifeless in that room? Do you remember who went with him? Peter, James, John. And when Jesus walked in and saw that lifeless little girl laying there, and all the mourners were just, you know, and most of those were paid people, to, they were paid to mourn, so they're wailing and carrying on and making a big ruckus. And Jesus said, get out, get them out of here. Get, get these paid mourners out of here. I only want the parents, Peter, James, and John. This is not a public spectacle. And you may recall, Jesus said to that little girl, Talitha, arise. Held her by the hand, and life came back to that little girl's body. Peter made everybody leave the room. Did he start chanting? Did he go through kind of a mystical ritual or something? Did he have incense? No. Peter didn't even look at the woman. He got down on his knees and he made this a very private, personal time with the Lord. I believe Peter was saying to Jesus, Lord, I know you're here. I know that I'm in this room with this lifeless woman that everybody is so distraught over for a purpose. I can't do anything. But I know with God all things are possible. I believe Peter had a prayer that probably would rock the foundations of that house as he called upon the name of the Lord. And I think it's interesting, Mark, uh, or Luke, rather, Luke, not to miss details, pointed out that Peter said almost identically what Jesus said to that little girl in that room. 
There was only one letter difference. You go back and check the manuscript. Jesus said to that little girl as He held her lifeless hand, Talitha, little girl, arise. Peter takes this woman's lifeless hand. He uses her Aramaic name, Tabitha, arise. And immediately we see she was given life. In fact, verse 40, and Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed on the Lord. So, what's this all about? Is it about miracles? Is it about showing divine power? Is it about doing spectacular things to, to get to woo people and to all people? No. God is using His faithful servant to draw people into the kingdom of God. If you go back to the incident with Aeneas, where Peter healed, healed this lame man, look at verse 30. So all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and what? And what? Turn where? To the Lord. And, and in, in the Greek language, that verb that is used to turn is, is more than to suggest that they simply had a change of mind. Oh, it's much more than that. It's much more than simply subscribing to some type of a religious doctrine. Oh, it's much more than that. It's, it's much more than just affirming what somebody has said. No. They saw the power of the Spirit of God working in Peter and they turned, which is the same word almost for repentance, when you turn completely around. They turned from sin. They turned to the Lord. What impact did Tabitha's raising have upon the people? In verse 42, And it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. You see, Peter was careful to give credit to Christ. And God's Spirit was drawing many into the kingdom. And that's the way it should be for you and me. When we go out and we live the abiding in Christ principle, we choose every day to let the Spirit of God live in us. Brothers and sisters, I think one of the reasons Christians don't see wonderful and spectacular things happen in their lives and around them is because we don't live that life. We don't give... God the credit that He deserves. We don't trust Him. We don't have the faith that God is indeed always working around us and that He is inviting us to become involved with Him in what He's doing. But Peter did. And the church benefited from that. And we see that the people were responsive to the gospel message. What was the gospel message? I believe when Peter did miracles, he was right in there with the gospel message. And Peter tells us what that gospel message is in chapter 4 of Acts when he was before the Sanhedrin. He and John, and they were ridiculing them and intimidate, trying to intimidate them uh, and, and threaten them not to preach the name of Jesus. Listen to what Peter said in Acts chapter 4 verse 12. He said, Nor is there salvation in any other... For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the only way. 
And people saw the power of the Spirit of God in this faithful servant of God and they believed the message of God that said, if you want to be saved, if you want to be free from the penalty, the just penalty of your sins, you've got to put your faith wholeheartedly in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for our sins. So you see the church beginning to work and grow. Church, the message hadn't changed. Nor is there salvation, ladies and gentlemen, in any other. There's not salvation in world religion. There's not salvation in man's philosophical systems. There's not salvation in good moral living or charitable giving. There's no salvation apart from the name of Jesus Christ. Wherever you go, whatever you may encounter, whomever you may encounter, the message is the same. When people are convicted of their sin and they're looking for salvation, the thing you need to tell them is there's only one way, and His name is Jesus. You know, the Lord strategically places His messengers. He did Peter. Put him right at the right place at the right time. To do the right thing. And it's not coincidental. It's not accidental. When you find yourself in a witnessing situation, an opportunity to share Christ with someone, dear friend, I promise you, it's providential. God will put you in places to do His work, to bring Him glory, to bring people to Jesus Christ. The question is, are you listening? Are you tuned in? Now think about how was it possible. Here's Peter, Simon Peter, visiting churches in the region of Lydda, in Joppa, Sharon. How did those churches get there? This is outside. This is on the, the sea coast along the Mediterranean Sea. This is the coastal plain, the Gaza Strip. How did those churches get there? Do you remember a, a, an evangelist earlier in chapter 8? His first name started with the P. It rhymed with Philip. Yeah. Yeah, oh, it's coming back. You remember an Ethiopian eunuch? Yeah. Yeah. You remember how God strategically put Philip at an intersection in a wilderness where he would encounter a prominent government official, an Ethiopian eunuch who was on his way back home who was searching for God. Do you understand how God's timing and his, his, his plans work precisely? Philip was there. The unit got saved. And I believe he was instrumental in the spread of the church in the Ethiopian country. But do you remember after Philip had finished, back there in chapter 8, when he finished and, 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 and had baptized the Ethiopian eunuch? And um, in verse 39 of chapter 8 says, but and now when they came up out of the water, this is after he had baptized the Ethiopian, and the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. He wouldn't see him until they got to heaven. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, or which is now Ashdod. This is before Star Trek, y'all. This is before Scott had beamed me up. He 
He's looking in the face of this demon Ethiopian who's now a new Christian, water dripping off of him from a recent baptism. And before he could say, and another, boom. Ethiopian said, where did he go? Y'all saw him, he's right here. Imagine Philip standing there looking at Ethiopian, and poop, here he is in Ashdod. Welcome to the city of Ashdod. Where is it? Where was it located? If you go back and read the text, you'll see. It's right along the coast. And what was, that? what was Philip's goal? He was going to go to Caesarea. And he was going to preach on the way up. You go back and look at your Bible map and plot the course from Azotos or Ashdod and Caesarea. Look at the towns you'll see. Because you'll see Joppa, you'll see Lydda, you'll see Sharon. Philip probably planted these churches. God put him there. Why? Because he knew that after he got the Christian church started there, he was going to bring a man named Peter into town. And he knew that Peter was going to raise a paralytic and preach the gospel. He knew that Peter was going to raise a dead person and preach the gospel. Listen, God doesn't do anything by happenstance. Praise the Lord. I think here in chapter 9, as we look in closing, in verse 43, it says, So it was that, that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon. Now remember, Luke doesn't miss a, a, a trick. He's going to catch every detail. He's got Peter now. You know, he's worked hard. Probably going to spend some time at the beach. Laid back on the Mediterranean coast there and kick back a little bit. But look, who's he, look who is his host. Simon. Hey, Simon. Hey, Simon. <laughs> but, but, but more importantly, Simon, a tanner. He says, a, a, a tanner took cowhides and worked with them and made them into leather. What's the significance of that? He was ceremonially, religiously unclean. Of all the people that he would stay with, God had him stand with a man that everybody else that was religious would say, you don't want to stay there because he's ceremonially unclean. And yet that's where God had him. Because you see, I believe that God wanted Peter to understand something that later he would help Paul to understand. And over in Galatians in chapter 2, I believe that God wanted Peter to learn a valuable lesson that I believe he wants the church to learn today. And that is in verse 26 of Galatians 3, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have been put on Christ, have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. I could insert Tanner, non-tanners. He wanted Peter in the time that he spent with Simon the Tanner to understand that when a person comes to Jesus Christ, they're made a part of one family and everybody is equal. Everybody is the same. And I believe Peter would get that lesson 
If it didn't, he certainly will by the time we get to chapter 10. Here's what I want you and me to really grasp out of this. God's providence will place us in, in places where he will and he can use us. Places and people that maybe you and I would not have even uh, dreamed of and imagined. If you are abiding in Christ and Christ is abiding in you, then every day is an adventure. Because you don't know the next opportunity whereby you're going to have a chance to speak truth into the life of a lost person. I remember one of our Kenya missions trips near the, near the coastal plain. We had finished up with our missions trip and we had made our way down to the, the, the seacoast town of Mombasa on the shore of the, of the Indian Ocean. I was telling our companions group about this. And, and we were staying in a nice resort area. It's called Whispering Palms. It had these 500 tall palm trees and it had signs at the base saying, Watch for falling coconuts. And you better, because you'd be walking around the yard, you have this, boom. There'd be a coconut, it'd kill you. So anyway, that's all I remember. But, but that night they were entertaining us with some native entertainment. They had some of their native dancers and they had their headgear and the bones hanging out of their mouths and, you know, and the jingles and everything. And they were casting nets and they were jumping around looking all savage and everything. And, you know, something about that made me and the others just kind of feel uncomfortable. I don't know if they were headhunters. Just kind of holding on. But we just got up. We left. We, we politely said, thank you. I think it was when the that head dancer wanted me to put on a headdress. And I said, forget it. <laughs> but we left. We left. We, walked, we were walking across the courtyard. Lo and behold, we heard something that sounded familiar. We, we looked, and there sitting under a lean-to was a, a small group of Kenyans watching, get this, watching the Jesus movie. I'd seen it. I knew it. I knew it almost verbatim. And they were watching the Jesus movie. So I said, come on, let's sit here and watch it with them. So here we are. We're sitting in the back, being Baptist. And, and we're watching the, the remainder of the Jesus movie. And you know, it's a beautiful scriptural rendition. And then the movie stopped, the credits rolled, and the group just sat there. You know, like, it's over. Looking at each other. And that's when the Spirit got a hold of my heart and said, hey, do something. Do something. I've done the movie. I've got the message. Do something. So I told Jack, says, y'all pray. I'm going to get up here and do something. So I got up in front of the group after the film rolled and I said, does anyone here know English? Of course, if they didn't raise, raise their hand, I guess they didn't know. So I go back to my fluent Swahili. Jambo. Habari. <laughs> that's all about all I knew. But several hands went up. And I took that opportunity to begin to share. I said, what you've just seen is a marvelous message from God. It's about His Son, Jesus Christ. And I told Him how the Scripture said we're all sinners and the penalty of our sins is death. And, and Christ came and took our place and died for our sins. And if we put our faith and trust and choose to make Jesus the Lord and the Savior of our lives, then we can be saved. We can, we can know that when we leave this life that we will go into eternity and, be, and live with the Lord. And, and you know, I'm just thinking, I, I'm doing something. I'm doing something. They may run me out, but I'm doing something. And so when I finished, simply said, 
Is anyone here today that would like to make this decision? And then one hand popped up, and, and then another hand, and then another hand, and I had the privilege of then with our group praying, leading them in praying to receive Jesus Christ. Being where I never in my wildest dreams could have imagined that God would put me there and our group there that we could use something like the Jesus film to make a difference. Listen, you don't know where God will lead you. And that's why when Peter said later in his first epistle in chapter 3 verse 15, he says, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. What does that mean? Set Him apart. When you get up in the morning, you put on your jewelry, and you put on your watch, and you put on all the other things that you, you know, your watch. Look, first and foremost, put on Christ. When you check to make sure everything's in place, make sure that you have sanctified, that you have Christ abiding in you, so that when you go out and you have the opportunity and God sets the stage, you won't have to fumble. You'll know exactly that the Lord is working through you to bring someone to Christ. It could be a co-worker, schoolmate, a neighbor, a friend. You don't know. But be like Simon Peter. So I ask you today as a close. Are you living in Christ? If you've never truly come to the recognition of the fact that you are a sinner, then you've got to get to, to first base. And that simply says, yes, the Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And, and the Bible tells us that the penalty of sin is, is eternal death and separation from God. If you've never come to be convicted of that reality, dear friend, that's where you start. You can't get saved until you understand that by your sins you're lost. You're condemned. If you die without Christ and, and in your sinfulness, you will spend eternity in a terrible place of judgment called hell. But praise God! The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And when, when you realize that, when, when God the Father convicts your heart to say, oh yes, I am a sinner, and I know that I need salvation from my sins, and the only way is through Christ, and I want to repent of my sins. I want to turn my back on my sins. I want to choose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you're on your way to following Christ. And live in the abiding in Christ's life. If you've not come to that point of decision, dear friend, I invite you with all the passion and earnestness in my heart, do it today. Do it today. If God is speaking to your heart, you know He's calling you to Christ, then you come. Make a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Make a commitment to follow Him and to apply His teachings to your life every day. Make a commitment to sanctify Christ in your heart and to stop living for yourself and to live for Christ for the glory of God. Do it today. And if you've already made that decision and you're convinced that you are a child of God, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, then I challenge you not to look at another day in the same way. I challenge you to look at your life beginning tomorrow as an adventure. An adventure like Simon Peter. Every day that you're following Christ, He's living in you and He's wanting to do great and wonderful things through you. And you're going to look up at, at and seize every opportunity to be used by God to bring Him glory, to tell someone about Him. Let's just bow our heads for a moment as we just reflect. Wow! This abiding in Christ principle 
It really is a powerful thing. I'm not saying that you're going to raise paralytics to walk again. You might if Christ is in it and He wants to do that. I'm not suggesting that you're going to go into a funeral home and raise a, a lifeless corpse back to life. Not unless Christ is in it. But I can tell you this. When you're yielded to the Spirit of God and you're burning with the desire to be used of Christ to impact the lives of others for Christ, for His kingdom, I believe you will be absolutely astounded at the great and glorious opportunities the Lord will give you and me to be an instrument of change, transformation in the life of others. You may be the very vehicle through which Christ will speak the gospel to someone to be saved. You may be the very instrument of inspiration and encouragement to, to encourage a fellow Christian who's about to throw in the towel, to give up. You may be the very person that will change their heart and change their mind to encourage them to trust in the Lord and to confess their sins and to come running back to Jesus. You just don't know. And you won't know until you make a commitment to abide in Christ daily and to let Him abide in you.